Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair with the third and final programme in our series about Harold Innes. The programme was originally broadcast last fall. Innes was constantly saying, return to experience, return to the data, return to the geography, return to the history, get down in the local knowledge, get into what is really messy about it. I think that if you try to theorize Innes too far, that is to formalize him, to build a system out of him, that you lose him. Harold Innes called himself a dirt economist. He was born on a farm in southwestern Ontario. His research in economics was grounded in conversations with miners and mill workers, fishermen and trappers throughout the country. And even when his fame grew beyond Canada, he never lost the common touch. But Harold Innes was also, in the later years of his life, one of the most powerful men in Canadian academic life, the head of the Department of Political Economy at the University of Toronto, and a key advisor to the Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations, who at that time provided most of the funds for social science research in Canada. In this program, we'll look into these two sides of Harold Innes the dirt economist with his practical sense of the limits to knowledge, and the academic, who believed passionately that the university must remain an ivory tower. Innes thought it was very important for the university to maintain itself very separately from the state, so that he thought it was very wrong for people teaching in a university to go out and work as managers of the state. He thought that within the university you had the opportunity not to have to worry about whether you're absolutely right or absolutely wrong, whether your economic analysis was the one that was going to inform social policy or not, you could actually start exploring ideas in that more open-ended fashion and be a living example of what a dialogue could be like. This year is the 100th anniversary of Harold Innes's birth. This series by David Cayley is Ideas Tribute to Canada's most eminent scholar during the first half of the 20th century. In previous programs, David Cayley looked at Innes's work as an economist and pioneering communications scholar. Tonight, in the final episode, he considers Innes's views on the vocation of the intellectual, the nature of knowledge, and the proper place of universities within culture. David Cayley. In the summer of 1948, during a lecture tour in England, Harold Innes addressed a meeting of the Conference of Commonwealth Universities in Oxford. The organizers had asked him to speak about the moral changes produced in modern society by scientific and technological advances. He addressed the question mainly with regard to universities. The problem universities faced, he said, was the mechanization of knowledge. Under the influence of modern communications media, knowledge was being standardized and speeded up. Thought was being engulfed in a torrent of printed and broadcast words so swift that sustained reflection was becoming almost impossible. The university curriculum was fragmenting under the impact. Knowledge, he told his audience, has been divided to such an extent that it is apparently hopeless to expect a common point of view. Against this picture of stupefaction and decline, Innes upheld what he called the oral tradition, his bias, he said, was with this tradition, particularly as reflected in Greek civilization, and with the necessity of recapturing something of its spirit. 
Like the Greeks, he had written a year before his talk in Oxford, we should be concerned with making men, not with overwhelming them by facts disseminated with paper and ink, film, radio, and television. Education is the basis of the state, and its ultimate aim and essence is the training of character. Andrew Wernick is a professor of cultural studies at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. He has written on the central importance of Greek ideals in Innes's idea of a university. To understand the attachment of uh, Innes to Greece or to things Hellenic, uh, one, one has to understand that in relationship to his detachment from things Christian. I mean, after all, he had a Baptist background. He was, in some sense, destined for the ministry. And he got off the boat, I mean, perhaps as a result, or accelerated certainly by his experiences in the First World War. And like uh, many people in his generation, he was, you know, thoroughly disillusioned with the, with the ruling, <laughs> with the ruling explanations, the ruling values and values, the ruling principalities and powers. And I think it was to Greek ideas or or, or vision, or Greek-inspired vision of culture, that he turned to f fill the, the void, if you like, left by his decamping from Christianity. When Innes joined the Canadian Army in 1916, he explained to his sister that it was faith in Christianity that had made him enlist. His parents, who were devoutly Baptist, still hoped at the time that he would eventually become a minister. He was wounded in 1917 in France and later described himself as a psychological as well as a physical casualty of the war. By the time of his return to Canada in 1918, Christianity seems to have disappeared from his life. There are at least no further personal references to it that I know of, either in his papers or his published works. He described himself to friends as an agnostic, and according to his daughter Mary, refused, even on her wedding day, to enter a church. In the absence of any word from Innes himself on the subject, Andrew Wernick's contention that Innes's Greek ideals were a sublimation of his lapsed Christian faith remains a speculation. But the story certainly fits a very general trend in Western civilization after the Enlightenment. Hellenism, as the idea of reviving the West's Greek heritage was called, did become a substitute for Christian faith. It was also thought to provide a critical standpoint outside industrial society. And at Innes's time in Canada, Hellenism centered on the university. This was the living, breathing uh, ideology of the universities in the interwar period, as they were being, uh, as, as some people in them thought, revitalized. I think Innes was very attracted to that notion, and, and he just set about being an independent scholar in that context. Now that, for example, gives one a notion of the university is absolutely not beholden to the state. It's the duty of scholars, in fact, to inform people in power about what the truth is, or to inform the people what the truth is, irrespective of what anybody in power may, may say. I mean, so one can read Innes as sort of um, moving from his kind of Baptist, non-conformist, non dissenting kind of persona into the robes of an academic, where he's able to, again, speak truth to power. But, but this time, um, on the basis of, of an institution whose title to autonomy and to authority is based on its relationship to culture, human history, and human civilization, and not to some kind of transcendental mandate or, or, or some kind of um, otherworldly 
gift in the form of revelation. Innes conceived of education along Greek lines, defining it as a form of self-disciplined leisure aimed at the refinement of character and the exploration of ideas through a focused conversational give and take. And Greek ideas, Andrew Wernick says, were also the foundation of his thinking about politics, economics, and culture generally. I think that Innes's attachments are to the principles elaborated at the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. He refers to the Greek slogan, nothing in excess, periodically, as he does to the other slogan that's also up on the wall there, or was up on the wall there, which is, know yourself, which is, we know, is very important to the Socratic turn in Greek philosophy. But if you put these two principles together, nothing in excess, balance, uh, and balance understood as uh, a middle point, uh, a point of equipoise between two countervailing forces. If you put that together with the other principle, know yourself as reflexivity, uh, understanding your own bias, understanding that everything is biased and perspectival, trying to understand your bias in terms of other people's bias, that in fact is the only way in which a social scientist can pretend to be in any sense objective. You've got in this is sort of fundamental methodological and axiological principles. And I think for him these principles are touchstones in terms of which he responds to, assimilates, evaluates various aspects and strands within the liberal tradition, to which, of course, he's biographically closer. But I think in his own mind, he is obeying the norms of Apollonian wisdom. The genius of Greece at its height, for Innes, was the balance it achieved between spoken and written discourse. When alphabetic literacy first began to appear in Athens, it confronted a well-developed oral culture, Writing at first supplemented this culture, making it more flexible, extending its intellectual range, and freeing it from the limitations imposed by the need to memorize everything. Later, writing would get the upper hand, but during the period up to the later half of the fourth century, when writing supplemented orality without yet dominating it, Innes felt that a renewable resource had been created on which Western civilization could continue to draw. This was what he called the oral tradition. Richard Noble is a professor of political science at the University of Winnipeg. The notion of an oral tradition for Innes is it derives from this idea that the Greeks had a mode of communication and a mode of intellectual inquiry that was based on conversation. And he sees the Socratic dialectic, particularly as this is passed on to us in the, in the dialogues of Plato, as a sort of example of how this oral tradition can move towards the discovery of truth. So the dialectic essentially works. There are two. There's Socrates as the main uh, character, and he usually questions a character within the dialogue about an opinion that that person has, and they start from a general proposition, and then they work through uh, all the various uh, uh, objections to that proposition, and in the end come out with something quite different, which is another provisional proposition that is in turn examined by Socrates or questioned by Socrates and examined by another interlocutor. So the, the Socratic dialectic is an open-ended and flexible way of discovering the truth that never becomes dogmatic in Innes' view. It never asserts that there is a final truth. 
Now, this is to be contrasted with the written tradition, which developed uh, after the Renaissance and the invention of paper, which Innes sees as a mode of communication and a mode of intellectual inquiry, which is much more dogmatic. For Innes, when a proposition or an argument appears in written form, it acquires a kind of spurious finality, a sort of implicit claim to be absolutely or finally true. And what happens when an argument is written down is that the discussion of it turns towards the veracity of that argument rather than the ongoing search for truth. So for Innes, the oral tradition is something that has been supplanted by the written tradition and the mechanized forms of communication that arise out of the written tradition, but it nevertheless exists within certain kinds of institutions that have their root in the pre-Renaissance or pre-modern world. Uh, Among these, the common law tradition, the court system, churches, many churches, and of course universities. And, And I think universities are for him the great bastions of the oral tradition in modern life. The oral tradition, in Innes's view, was not simply an idea. It was also a set of practices embodied in certain crucial institutions, like the university, on which it depended. In seeing these institutions as the ground and guarantee of this tradition, Richard Noble says, Innes belonged to a school of English-speaking liberalism, which Noble calls the old Whigs. The 18th century Whigs I associate the old or conservative Whigs with figures like David Hume and Edmund Burke, both of whom were extremely skeptical about the role of reason in human affairs and human history, and both of whom tended to see freedom not as a consequence of our possession of reason or our ability at determining our own plan of life, but rather as a consequence of historically evolved customs and traditions and institutions in which specific types of liberties inhered. So Burke, for instance, would argue that British liberties were an entailed inheritance from the past and that they were specific to Britain and British uh, experience. And his critique of the French revolutionaries, and in particular the Declaration of the Rights of uh, Man and Citizen, was that they were an assertion of abstract or uh, general liberties, liberties that applied to all human beings in virtue of the fact that they were human. For Burke, this notion of liberty was a wildly abstract and uh, and essentially uh, destructive one because if imposed, it would override all the um, institutions and customs and traditions that had evolved in France to protect the liberties of the people of France. Richard Noble thinks that Harold Innes conceived of freedom in this older liberal sense as something inseparable from the institutions in which it was embodied. And he thinks that Innes belonged to this tradition in another sense as well, his feeling for balance. In the political sphere, Innes favored a balance of power between Canadian governments. During the Great Depression, for example, when many of his colleagues spoke in favor of strengthening the federal government's power to deal with the problems Canada was facing, Innes advocated a decentralization of power to the provinces. In his later work on communications, he concluded that social stability depended on a balance between media. Some media, he argued, make us aware of the outer spatial dimension of existence and some of the inner temporal dimension. Modern mass media, he thought, were heightening space bias through their power to command and align people's attention over huge areas. 
Civilization, consequently, was being locked into a perpetual, excited present, and questions of time put out of mind. The problem was restoring balance. One of the consequences, in Innes's view, of uh, space-biased societies was the centralization of authority in the state, and the Canadian state, partly because of its own internal development and partly because of the pressures imposed on it by American imperialism, had become very centralized and very powerful. Now, his part of his solution to this problem is to argue that we need a much greater decentralization of power, and particularly in institutions that are in some way Im embody the oral tradition or are related to the oral tradition. So he wants to set up kind of counterbalancing institutions. Among these, provincial legislatures or provincial governments, um, also, but also universities that are not under the authority of the central government, but under the authority of provincial governments, and indeed under their own authority, if, if at all possible independent churches, a legal system which is completely independent of the, of the central government. This conception of a government in which there is a balance of power is integral to the Whig tradition of thinking about liberty. Harold Innes has always been acknowledged a liberal, even by those who have claimed him for the left. But Richard Noble has made this sometimes vague description a lot more precise by showing Innes's debt to the old Whig or conservative branch of liberal thought. John Watson has also tried to refine the conventional wisdom about Innes's politics by insisting that there was a populist side to Innes, not caught by the term liberal as it's normally used. Watson is the executive director of Care Canada and the author of a doctoral thesis on Innes called Marginal Man. Because Canada was a young country, he says, Innes was not just defending established or inherited institutions, but actively building new ones. Well, I think he was a liberal, but I, I think he was much more political than most liberals who would have concentrated more on the issue of uh, the individual. Innes felt the political project had to be associated with it, that the institutions had to be built, not just defended. And in that sense, he had a much more collective view of his mission than a typical liberal would have. Put it another way, it wasn't good enough just for the intellectual to develop a way of looking at the world. There also had to be a relationship between the intellectual and normal people, common people, in the context that he was coming from. This worldview had to be worked through so that it was shared by a polity. And uh, I think in that sense, he has a much more collective or political sense of his work than uh, a normal liberal would have. In Marginal Man, his study of Innes, John Watson has argued that Innes's collective and political sense of what he was doing involved creating a Canadian social science that could, in effect, think for itself. This project was undermined, Watson thinks, by the Depression. Innes, in the 20s, had called for a prolonged, patient, and disinterested study of the nature of the Canadian economy. The catastrophic collapse of this economy in the 30s created an urgent demand for immediate action. Scholars on the political left responded by founding the League for Social Reconstruction and later the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the successor of today's NDP. Innes feared this development for two reasons. 
First, because he saw the left reaching reflexively for ready-made solutions rather than continuing to explore new ones. And second, because he feared that the intrusion of professors into politics would weaken the independence of the university and fudge the difference between politics and scholarship. To him, the social sciences were still in their infancy in Canada, and he doubted whether they would retain either their curiosity, their intellectual honesty, or their public standing if they started offering answers they didn't have. We suffer, he said, from a plethora of preachers and a scarcity of intellectual effort. Economist Irene Spry joined the Department of Political Economy at the University of Toronto in 1929 and was Innes's colleague until she left in 1938. She says that Innes's opposition to scholars engaging in partisan politics was not because he didn't see the importance of politics. If you read uh, the conclusion of the fur trade, the conclusion of the cod fisheries, you will see that he's all the time aware of the interrelationship between political decisions and wars and other uh, such activities and economic developments. What he didn't think economists should do was commit themselves to one particular political pattern of thought. And that was why he was so very much against scholars committing themselves to a particular party or a particular type of economic thought such as Marxism. He felt they should keep on trying to find out what actually happened and develop, if they could, a, a theoretical structure based on that. Scholarship for Innes was an unfinished and by its nature unfinishable enterprise. It involved, he once said, the right and the duty not to make up one's mind. It was therefore inherently incompatible with politics, which involved precisely the opposite duty. Scholars might consult with politicians, Inna served on three royal commissions during his career, but should take no part in the state. When people left the academic world to go into government work, which meant essentially that they were adopting a government point of view. In that case, he felt that they had betrayed their major responsibility as social scientists, which made him very unpopular and perhaps led to some wrong judgments on his part. When, for example, people like Joe Parkinson, Wynne Plumtree, went into government activity, he didn't welcome them back into teaching. Innes viewed scholarship as a demanding and exclusive vocation, and he could be unforgiving to those who fell short of the mark. A scholar, Innes wrote, must face the necessity of giving his life to the pursuit of truth and realize that he cannot hope to make contributions of significance with less than 20 to 25 years of his life. Irene Spry worked closely with Innes, and she experienced this attitude at first hand when she left the Department of Political Economy. I uh, certainly did let Innes down. He was training me to carry on the work that he thought 
should be done by social scientists. And instead I went out, got married and had children and did war work and uh, never produced the book I was supposed to write that, about uh, the, the energy sources in Canada. And I perfectly understand why Innes wrote me off. He had every right to do so. Irene Spry and Harold Innes never spoke again after she left the department in 1938. Innes's colleague, S.D. Clark, in an interview with John Watson, recalled other cases in which Innes acted as if scholarship were a lifelong vocation requiring virtually monastic vows. When young colleagues happily announced their engagements to him, Clark recalled, they were dismayed to find his open expression of disappointment. In one case, he denounced the impending marriage as an abandonment of intellectual duty with such venom that the individual was reduced to tears. One sees in these stories, I think, a dark, somewhat driven, and oddly unrealistic side to Innes's personality. He was, after all, himself married and the father of four children. Innes's dedication to Canadian scholarship was selfless and total, historian Carl Berger has written. But this entailed, Berger adds, a certain egoism of selflessness. This dedication during the 30s involved him in a rhetorically violent opposition to colleagues who became political partisans or who made statements suggesting that they knew more about what was good for other people than Innes thought they did. Andrew Wernick. He was alarmed by the way in which, during the 1930s, when the capitalist economy was clearly in a slump, uh, economists like pigs went off to the trough to take government money to make pronouncements on what could be done about it. And he was absolutely convinced that in any case, economic processes and problems were too large and too complicated to be dealt with by any kind of short-range panacea. But beyond that, he was concerned about the way in which economists were, were being, becoming concerned with short-range problems and getting so concerned for the practical and therefore incapable of thinking beyond the immediate and therefore in some paradoxical way they were not able to be practical at all. He tended to think that the best practical benefit that could be extracted from the kind of wisdom that might accumulate in a university was to be impractical. <laughs> not in order to shut oneself off from humanity totally, but in order to deal with things in a larger perspective. And in order to deal with things in a larger perspective, you have to have a kind of an envelope around you that insulates you from the pushes and pulls of fashions, fads, policy demands, and immediate debates and issues. You have to be above the fray in order to be able to see the whole picture. And, and he was concerned, in other words, that the way in which economists were going off doing research projects or policy conferences for the federal government in Canada, for example, was misdirecting attention towards sort of immediate crises and taking people's attention away from what he saw as a much, much longer range and much deeper problems in the West that would require a kind of an accumulation of cultural capital even to be able to formulate the thoughts to deal with. And he was certain, I think he's concerned that in Canada the, the intellectual culture was much too thinly developed um, to, to be able to afford to sort of squander it, its talent in this way it was in some sense a well-founded criticism. I mean, it was, of course, one that won him no, <laughs> no friends at all, and I think he was something of a lone voice in this respect. An ivory tower, Innes wrote, is essential if a universal point of view is to be attained. 
This view involved a strict separation between the university and the state. But it was not a refusal of power as such. It was rather an attempt to make the university an independent power, able to claim authority on a time scale distinctively different than the state's. Within this institution, John Watson says, Innes was extremely conscious of questions of power and quite willing to exercise it. He fought for uh, Canadian control of the university. He was uh, not just uh, an unengaged scholar who wanted to do his research and be left alone. He wanted to have power within the institution. And uh, I think, quite frankly, because he had this tremendous intensity, this pessimism about him, this rather cranky personality, he was viewed by his colleagues as not always being the most appropriate uh, person to hold those positions of power. So there were uh, often, uh, there was a resistance to his moving up in terms of being appointed to positions of power within the university, which he recognized and viewed as, uh, I think, a political resistance. Uh, it was overcome in the end simply because of the excellence of his scholarship. But I'm sure most of his colleagues, even if they were alive today, would say, you know, the problem with Innes was he was a great scholar but a lousy administrator. And uh, so when he moved up through the ranks, he, uh, he tended not to um, get his chance to take over positions of authority unless he put his foot down and threatened resignation and, and got the, the promotions, if you like, uh, through those tactics. Innes threatened resignation, or actually resigned, several times during his career at the University of Toronto, acting both in his own interest and in the interests, as he saw it, of Canadian scholarship. He fought over what he considered to be a lowering of standards in his own department, and he fought over the university's attempt to appoint a British scholar in preference to a Canadian as head of geography. He kept current in every field he had touched on as a scholar, in the hope of influencing hiring in those fields. As his academic reputation grew, he became the main advisor to the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations, who then provided the bulk of funds for social science research in Canada. By the time he became head of political economy in 1937, and later dean of graduate studies, he was, in a very practical sense, the most powerful scholar in Canada. In 1935, in an article in the Canadian Journal of Economics and Political Science, Harold Ennis took up the problem of objectivity in the social sciences. He was responding to an earlier article which had denied that objectivity was possible. And he began by agreeing that our thinking is very deeply conditioned by the circumstances in which we find ourselves. But he then says that this very conditioning, which he calls bias, constitutes the chief interest of the social scientist. Thought in the social sciences grows, he went on, by the correction of bias. It can never arrive at objectivity, but it can keep moving towards it by a careful analysis of the habits, preconceptions, and prejudices which structure our minds, our institutions, and our world. 
The task of the social scientist, then, in Innes's view, is a strenuous, heroic, and ultimately doomed struggle with bias. Innes's sense of the difficulty of this task and the intellectual discipline he felt it demanded is, I think, one of the reasons that he argued so forcefully that the university must maintain a separate existence. Social science otherwise would easily settle into flattering the prejudices from which it ought to be trying to escape. Ian Parker is a professor of economics at the University of Toronto. Innes once said that we must all be aware of the extraordinary, possibly insuperable difficulty of understanding a culture of which we are a part or of understanding a culture of which we are not a part. And that pretty well leaves us in ignorance whichever way we turn. And it seems to me that that underlines the fact that he thought that economic understanding was an extraordinarily difficult beast to tame, that it's very difficult to figure out what's going on. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that in the 1930s, when everybody was clamoring for instant solutions, that Innes was very concerned that the solutions not be worse than the disease. Now, that's difficult to say when you have more than a quarter of your workforce out of work, where your national product has dropped by 25-30%. But what he was concerned was that the instant fix type of mentality that he experienced both among the social planners of the right, the sort of engineers, and what he regarded as the social planners of the left, the League for Social Reconstruction and so on, would make the situation even worse than it was because it was founded on simplistic solutions rather than on the kind of complex understanding that he'd reached. Innes's attacks on simplistic solutions, or what he called the prostitution of intellectual interest, were based on a deep conviction about the nature of knowledge. This conviction, briefly, was that the world never stands still and never changes in predictable, predetermined ways. Theory may have some power to force the world to behave in expected ways, but it is never perfectly in tune with what actually happens, as Irene Spry said a moment ago. He had formed this view, says Robin Neal, as an economic historian who noticed how frequently unforeseen changes invalidated the static models of economic theory. Robin Neal is a professor of economics at Carleton University and the author of A New Theory of Value, a study of Innes' economics. If you have a system which doesn't change, then you can predict what will happen in the thing, and then you can have a solution. But if you're dealing with the, uh, those things which are not fixed in the system, which disrupt the system, then you, you can't have a theory because you don't have a static flow. You have something disrupting it, which is not determined, which is not predictable, which may not recur. Then uh, I wouldn't say that, that he thought we could never come to a solution but he certainly thought that we didn't have it yet. I don't think he is a positive theorist. I don't think he can be a positive theorist. In statistics and quantitative analysis and correlation figures and this sort of thing always imply that there are fixed parameters, that things do not change. That's the only basis on which you can predict something. You can't do positive science in a world of total change. There has to be 
fixed factors, there have to be fixed functions. But Innes is saying, you know, those functions change. And so, you know, what you would predict on the basis of the numbers you have today is going to be wrong because the system is changing. The fact of unpredictable, discontinuous change and the problem of bias were both, for Innes, sobering indications of the limitations of thought. Civilization, he once said, was a struggle between those who know their limitations and those who do not. This gave him a distinctive view of scholarship, not as the production of positive knowledge, which was often impossible, but as a defensive struggle against the errors and illusions which result from forgetting one's limitations. When he criticized his colleagues for offering nostrums against the Depression, he did not say that their ideas were wrong as such. He said that they were wrong to address the public with such misleading confidence. He thought that they were drawing on the prestige of scholarship to argue positions that scholarship itself could not justify, and thereby gradually exhausting the limited moral authority the university could claim. Social scientists, in Innes's view, could make a qualified claim to valid knowledge, but it was essential that they understand the particular character of this knowledge. The strong boundary on which Innes insisted between the university and society was as much to protect society from the pretensions of scholars as it was to protect scholars from the designs of politicians. James Carey is a professor of journalism at Columbia University in New York and the author of Communication as Culture. Innes recognized that there were two kinds of knowledge. The first kind of knowledge is, to put it simply, the knowledge we gain in experience, on the ground, in the complex affairs and adjustments of living. A farmer may not know the formal science of agriculture, but he knows this plot of ground. He knows what will grow and what will not grow. He knows by experience and often intuition what are the precise circumstances under which he has to work. This is a kind of local knowledge. Now, there is, in addition, general knowledge in agriculture, genetics, soils, agronomy, etc. Innes was aware that there were two traditions of knowledge of this kind that frequently came into conflict with one another. For example, in an empire, it is the center back in Washington, forgive me, that says, we know how to run the farms better than the farmers do because we have more knowledge. But the knowledge they have must inevitably be abstract, remote, non-particular, however useful it is. So it seems to me that one way, therefore, of grasping what Innes was trying to say was, I, as an individual, as a social scientist, cannot have the knowledge. It must everywhere intersect with what I think he would call knowledge in time, the knowledge that comes from experience, the knowledge that comes from the, the adjustments people make to living day by day by day. That's real knowledge, too. The scientists can't run the society. The scientists can't know what to do because his knowledge is always too remote. Thinking, for Innes, often involved unthinking. It demanded a difficult effort to work against the grain of established habits of thought, habits built into our institutions as well as our minds. Judith Stamps of the University of Victoria 
tries to get at this side of Innes in a forthcoming book called Unthinking Modernity. In this book, she compares Innes with two German thinkers of what was called the Frankfurt School, Walter Benjamin and Theodor Adorno. These thinkers, though contemporary with Innes, were unknown to him, as he was to them, but Stamps finds striking similarities. Adorno, for example, was concerned, like Innes, with what he called the culture industry and the way in which this industry distracts attention from enduring questions and fixes it on the glittering, transitory surfaces of modern life. And also like Innes, Adorno felt that the horrors of the 20th century had something to do with an arrogant overconfidence in reason. Adorno thought that you had to go back and start rethinking how to reason. And one of the ways you could do that is you could start thinking about concepts, the kind of concepts that we took for granted in our society, and start thinking against those concepts. You could start thinking that when you, say, classified a group of people, that classification never quite captured whoever or whatever it was you were trying to classify. And the parts of the person or the class that somehow escaped classification were those things that you could then use as a way of thinking against the concept. You would start looking at, say, the bourgeois class. That's a term that's tossed around by Marxist theorists a lot. Things are called bourgeois questions. It's the worst thing that you could do is be called a bourgeois. In some way or other, I had a professor once told me I'd, I'd asked a bourgeois question. <laughs> Devastated me. Well, then you would look at this class, and you would see the ways in which the word bourgeois simply didn't really apply to it. You would see them doing things that were untypical according to what this ideal type was supposed to say about them. And you would use these untypical things as a way of thinking against the concept. And he suggested that you couldn't get away from this kind of dynamic. Every time you develop a name to call somebody, you're developing this kind of positive space that then produces a negative space. Every time you name somebody anything, you're forgetting some part of that person. Some part of that person is marginalized by the name. And it's by focusing on that negative part of that margin and using that to speak against the name uh, that you create what he called a negative dialectic. Judith Stamps thinks that this closely parallels Innes's procedure. Innes too recognized the shadows cast by positive concepts. And he too saw these shadows as the proper starting points for a reconstruction of reason on more humble foundations. I see Innes as doing that when he's trying to study empire, and especially when he's trying to study empire as a form of knowledge. He saw the Western empire, and he saw that, say, the classical view of economics was part of that empire. It was part of that empire that was trying to impose itself through, for example, something like the classical economic textbook that then got imported to Canada, where students had to try and study their own economy by looking at these classical economic views, uh, views that marginalized some of the real things that were going on in the Canadian economy so that the students just wouldn't see those real things. Uh, he felt that it was, even in his early political economic stage, felt that it was important to do that materialist, very kind of dirt research approach in order to act as a kind of a dialogue with his classical tradition. But when he got more sophisticated about the stuff in, in his uh, communication study, then he looked at the whole concept of what he called monopolies of knowledge, monopolies of how people think about things, 
classical economics being an, uh, an arch archetypal example of a monopoly of knowledge, a way of understanding the world that imposes itself on everyone. So we thought what you had to do then is to look at how monopolies of knowledge create margins and then to look at what those margins have done historically as a way of coming up with new and interesting and creative alternative concepts of knowledge. He saw history as a successive development of monopolies and their margins. And he saw the interaction in history as an interaction between monopoly and margin. That was his version of a kind of negative dialectic. Monopoly, for Innes, is a possibility inherent in every act of definition and control. A word unaware of its limitations is already the seed of an empire. Mechanized words, accelerated by modern techniques of printing and broadcasting, acquire such positive power that thought itself may be reduced to passive compliance. Paralyzed, Innes says. Opposition to this formidable power, he thinks, requires a sheltered space, a space which only the university can really provide. Again, it is the difficulty and vulnerability of real thinking that underlines the argument for an independent university. Innes's hopes for the university were disappointed, and by the time he contributed to the Manitoba Royal Commission on Adult Education in 1948, his thoughts on the subject were bitter. The university graduate, he wrote, is illiterate as a result of the systematic poisoning of the education system. The capacity to break down prejudice and to maintain an open mind has been seriously weakened. Education, he said, had become a series of memory mazes and a process of supplying standard erudition in uniform packages. Richard Noble. I think in relation to the university, what he saw going on were sort of two types of movement. One was internal to the university. The social sciences were beginning to ape the natural sciences and to seek a kind of, you know, universal truth in their inquiries. And then externally, what was going on was that governments and business and the boards of directors that represented them on universities were trying to argue to, or, or force the universities to become more useful, or in other words, to twist their intellectual imperatives to the uh, public policy imperatives of governments and, and, the, uh, and the commercial imperatives of business. And so these two sorts of movements in our culture, which were really just in their infancy and in the 40s, but have now become the sort of overwhelming uh, press upon universities, um, were something that Innes was able to see because of his conception of the oral tradition. It wasn't so much that there was overwhelming empirical evidence for the the sort of uh, multiversity that we now have. I mean, these kinds of things didn't exist in the 40s. I mean, of course, there was some vocational training going on in universities, but on the whole, they were very kind of intellectually oriented. The history and philosophy and classics were still at the center of the curriculum. But because of what Innes saw as the sort of these various insidious threats to the oral tradition in our culture, he was able to see 
why that idea of the university was going to go into decline. And um, I think it's, it's quite astonishing that, that he saw it so clearly. The term he uses is industrialization. The university has been industrialized. This is Andrew Wernick. It's become like a factory. It's become standardized. Uh, you've got courses. You've got reading lists. You've got organized activities. In his mind, you've got um, a machine being created for stamping out identical minds stuffed with information. What you haven't got is, is a zone of uh, free time in which uh, committed uh, young and more experienced scholars study, reflect, uh, meditate, develop uh, a perspective on their civilization and on other civilizations. He talks about the ways in which um, university courses are, are developing in areas that, uh, that will attract students, for example. He talks about the way in which research granting councils at the federal level, say in Canada, are leading research in the direction of what's immediately useful. So although he calls the whole thing industrialization, I think he has exactly the same critique as he does of other aspects of the society, culturally speaking. I say there are two forces at work, um, industrialism and commercialism. And I think for him, these are um, undermining what he sees as the ideal purposes of the university. The boundary which Innes had tried to defend between the university and society was gradually breaking down. He had, in a short-term sense, decisively lost his battle. The university was growing steadily more specialized, more dependent on the state, and more apt to justify its place in the state on the basis of its usefulness as a finishing school and information factory. George Grant's lamentations over the lost unity of knowledge during the 1960s and 70s confirmed everything Innes had said in the period after the Second World War. The university, nevertheless, continues to exist. It continues to honor many of its ancient traditions, and it continues to harbor teachers who prize balance, self-searching, and independence as much as Innes did. For them, Andrew Wernick says, Innes continues to be an inspiration. I don't think I'm working for the government, even though I'm being paid through state funds. I don't think that universities are serving the immediate community either. And I think one of the big traps that those who want to have a principled relationship to a university might fall into is, is to imagine that to be accountable for what we do is to be accountable to the people's representatives in Queen's Park or somewhere or even to be immediately accountable to the current people who are living. My accountability, as far as I'm concerned, is partly, of course, to the living, it's also to the dead, and it's also to the people who are not yet born. And they can't vote, and they can't buy. There's no way, of course, of holding us to account in terms of these invisible, unborn or dead communities of people. But nevertheless, I think that if the university is a more long-range institution than it's currently conceived to be. If it, if it is, in that sense, a transhistorical institution with a 4,000-year history and so on, as Innes like to remind us, then we have to imagine ourselves in the university in that kind of way. I think Innes's voice gives us the courage to think that thought and, and you know, the right <laughs> to be able to talk in the in these kinds of terms, because they have been talked about these terms at least once before uh, by somebody who did seem to 
matter and did seem to be um, acknowledged as a scholarly and intellectual authority um, in this particular part of the world. Harold Innes's writings on universities are one aspect of a diverse legacy. Since his death in 1952, he has been remembered as an historian with fundamental insights into Canada's origins and as the communications scholar who first pointed out that what we think we know depends on what the available media of communication direct our attention to. On the political left, he has been honoured for his resistance to American imperialism and his analysis of Canadian dependency. Today, I think, new readings are emerging. Tonight's programme, for example, has pointed to Innes's distinctive philosophy of knowledge. Read this way, he's a model not just of what to think, but of how to think. His emphasis on balance, paradox, diversity, and self-limitation seems to me to address our age's pressing need for a philosophy of limits. It is one more sign, I think, of Harold Innes's enduring influence. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to the final program in a three-hour series by David Cayley on the intellectual legacy of Harold Innes. Technical production was by Lon Tulk. The production assistants were Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. We'd like to thank Daniel Drach, Bill Buxton, the communication departments at Concordia University, the University of Montreal and the University of Quebec at Montreal, and the many other scholars who helped in the production of these programs. You can order a transcript by calling Radio Works at our toll-free number, 1-800-363-1530. That's 1-800-363-1530. And we have a free reading list, which you can get by writing to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sintler.